Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast on this episode. Oh, we're going to talk about the CFL schedule. Derek Taylor is here to go over the Blue Bomber schedule, the CFL schedule as a whole. Also, we're going to talk to Ted Wyman about curling on the podcast. Back in studio after a couple days at home and a couple late, late nights after doing the Sharks and Kings post-game shows and they're over at 1 and then I can't quite get to sleep yet. It's like 2 a.m. Well, I think I've got enough energy to get through the show tonight. We'll make it. Don't worry. Boston Pizza Sports Desk. We start with the NHL. We have two games underway, Washington and Philly. Zeros on the board and the Blue Jackets up 2-0 in Toronto against the Maple Leafs. Patrick Laine scoring his sixth of the season in that one. Plenty of Canadian action later on. The Flames at the Wild at seven. Same with the Sens at the Blues. First game after the Blues fired Craig Berube. Do they get that new coach bump? Eight o'clock, the Oilers go for a ninth win in a row as they host Tampa Bay. The Kraken take on the Blackhawks. That's not a Canadian team, but I mentioned it anyway for some reason. Canucks take on the Panthers at nine o'clock as well as they honor Roberto Luongo. Hurricanes and Red Wings are about to drop the puck. In Detroit, MJHL tonight, one game has the Winnipeg Freeze hosting the Portage Terriers at the Hockey for All Center. Manitoba Major Junior Hockey League, one game. St. Boniface visiting St. Vital. And the Thursday night football game is not great. The 5-8 and eight Chargers visit the 5-8 and eight Raiders. The CFL schedule is out for 2024. And the man who will be calling all the bomber games you see on the schedule, Derek Taylor, joins us now. Derek, happy schedule day to you. How do you celebrate schedule release day? Well, I sit and I wait until noon central time and then I just start hacking things into the computer about who flies where when and who gets more rest than whom and who's getting pooched by this and how many Thursdays are we going to have to to uh, put up with for, for Winnipeg games, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a variety of things. I'm, I'm currently grinding out this and that because someone posed it. Do you ever have this? Someone posed a question to you on Twitter and you absolutely positively have to find out the answer to it. And then you have to apply it to the last 10 years. And then you're like, you find, oh, I've just wasted four hours in front of the computer. Any of that? I mean, you have 12,000 followers and I have like 1,000 followers. So people ask you more questions than they ask me. But I understand your feeling of needing to know the answer. You're big into looking up rest, right? Yes, very much very much so. Because it, it, we end up, whether it's a big thing or not, we end up talking about it, right? Well, this team's coming off a bye or this team's coming off a short week. So I always like to, when the schedule comes out, figure out, okay, well, who's getting the benefits of this? And who's getting who's getting punched by by the schedule makers this time? Last week, last year, Winnipeg had the best schedule according to rest. They had I think it was fourteen days more rest than their opponents when you kind of add it up over the course of the season. And it sure doesn't hurt on your way to fourteen wins. But just kind of curious to find out. Okay, well, how do the schedule makers do what they do, and and who did they who did they punish? You know, whether just because they had to or they felt like some team needed it, maybe who knows. So the question that you might not know the answer to is all that the rest data. Do we know if it legitimately has an impact on wins and losses? That's that's part of what I'm going at today because that's that gets to be kind of a nebulous question, right? Because well, who was supposed to win the game? Who was the favorite right. to win the game? Where were they at going into it? There's so many factors that go into it. You can you can look at this. Someone said to me, "Oh, hey, I, I feel like." 
uh, teams that go on the road on four days rest didn't do real well last season. And I look back at it and I'm like, oh, actually, they were four and five. So that's not the worst pain ever. But how many of those games were they the favorite in and how many should they have won, right? Four and five sounds like an even split. But if, you know, it was if it was Winnipeg versus Ottawa twice or and it was BC versus Edmonton twice, well, that record should have been a little different. So that gets into uh, a lot more data. So that's that's kind of what today is all about. So let's get just into specifically what we have to start the season. The season opener is always a big game. The Blue Bombers are in it again. They're hosting Montreal Thursday, June 6th at uh, 7.30 p.m. I'm glad that the CFL has learned from its lesson of having the Argos play Sunday of week two as their first game. Put the Grey Cup rematch <laughs> week one. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. Be it Thursday, be it Friday, just just give us what we want, right? And, you know, should Winnipeg have been at home? Should the Grey Cup champs, deserve, you know, be at home? Whatever. At least we get this matchup, right? We didn't get it last year. We got it once last year, the, the Winnipeg-Toronto game, and that wasn't really it was too late. a game, right? Yeah, it was too late, and Chad Kelly didn't play, and Jamal Peters didn't play, and, and Winton McManus didn't play, some of the Toronto stars. So we never really got that. This time we get it. It's first thing out of the shoot. It's, it's great. It's one of many, many lessons the CFL has kind of taken to heart with this year's schedule. I'm so happy to see it. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier in one of my sportscasts, I wished that uh, Montreal hosting Winnipeg happened sooner in the season, other than it, it's, it's, we, it's literally the last weekend of the season. The last day of the yep. season, in fact, is Winnipeg at Montreal. And as we've seen the last number of years, quite often that last game of the season doesn't mean anything. Well, exactly. And, you know, you never know which way the two teams are going to go, right? Will Montreal improve over last year? Or will they regress? Will Winnipeg still be the dominant team in the West or will they regress? So you just, I guess that one to me strikes me as, okay, we're trying to fit things in the schedule and this is how it, how it played out as opposed to they intentionally did this. I don't, I don't think just other things within the Winnipeg schedule. I don't think you really want to have them playing BC three times in the first half of the season. But that's kind of how it plays out, right? You may think, hey, those are probably the two best teams in the West again. How about a late season one? But you kind of, I think, I think there's a fair bit of schedule making. This is just a guess on my part, but where you kind of take what you can get as far as stadium availability and who's where and don't want to put this team on the road four straight games because that'd be silly. So I, I feel like, unfortunately, the, the Winnipeg-Montreal second matchup kind of gets caught in that. Winnipeg plays really just kind of a home road, home road, just back and forth almost all season. They start on the at home and then road, home, road, home, home, road, road, and then it alternates from there uh, at the start of August. Do you like that? No home stands, no big road trips. I don't. Yeah, I don't mind that. I don't have a particular affinity for one over the other. Just as long as it's not, um, gosh, twenty twenty two where they were. In Toronto, and then they were in BC four day, you know, five days later, essentially with four days rest, flying from one end of the, you know, almost one end of the country to the other. As long as you can avoid that kind of thing, I, I'm fine with with however it plays out. Um, I don't I don't know if it's a it's a real big deal on five and six days rest. Teams should be able to be ready for whatever you know, and especially being Winnipeg being in the middle of the country, they get kind of a break. I think on some of the flights that they they have to take. So. Uh, that part works for me. And and the what do you make of the buys? What do you was, make of the 10, was, 15, and week 20 buys? Literally just about to ask you that question. That was my next question. I think it's I think it's good. 
I think you don't want to buy too early in the season, having to buy week two or three. You can't get into the rhythm of the season. I think last year the Bombers had one of the last buys, and I I know that they have struggled going into buys the last couple of years. They've had a lot of losses in those situations. (laughs) But having week 10, I think, is 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 maybe a bit late, but having a buy after the Banjo Bowl is, I think, a nice spot to have one. And then having one before the final week of the season, it, if it's if the Bombers have everything wrapped up, then it could be like what we saw with Toronto, where ugh, you're sitting for a while by irrelevant week by West final. Potentially, yeah. that is one potential, which is uh, is a long time to be off. But I, th- I think the Bombers buys are pretty good. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't see, like, there's no this year, I mean, last year Toronto had three buys in the first half of the season. There's not anything like that. I, I feel like maybe, you know, if you could, in a perfect world, get weeks 6, 12, and 18 off, you might want to go for that. But no, I'm, I'm with you in that it's not, they're not in too short an order. They're separated by a month. And, you know, if that final regular season game, the week 21 game you mentioned at Montreal, if that game is meaningful in any way, what a great way to go into it. Right. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're coming off a bye. You've just presumably been tested on October 11th in that game against the Toronto Argonauts. So, yeah, it's it, it could play out real well or we could get we could be uh, you and I sitting here 10 months from now going, oh, they don't play a real game for a month. Uh, but I honestly I always go with I would rather be rested than than anything else. I don't I don't really I subscribe to the rest as opposed to the rust. Bombers generally play a number of Thursday games. This year, they have a Thursday game in week one in Ottawa, week two. And just one more Thursday, August 1st, when they host BC. After that, it's all Fridays and Saturdays and uh, the Sunday game in Regina for the Labor Day Classic. What do you think of that? I I think the Bombers are probably pretty happy with that. I remember Wade Miller was in Edmonton when the Bombers were in Edmonton. We had him on the pregame show, and and I kind of assumed since they had four Thursday home games last year, I kind of assumed the Bombers had asked for him, and he very quickly on the air dissuaded me of the notion that they had asked for four home games on Thursday. So I think they are probably pretty happy with it. I've had some people on Twitter, uh, my pal Drew hit me up and said, Hey, uh, you know what? It, it keeps me from having to drive home two hours after the game and go to work on Friday. So I think that's probably ultimately a benefit. Thursdays are not the sexiest day to have a football game. So you really, to me, the league really has to share that around with folks uh so yeah to see two uh, including that one potentially big game against bc i like that it's two versus four because i i wonder how much ultimately like literally dollar wise how much that costs the bombers and we get to other things the cfl learned from last year they're finally going back to a balanced schedule this is something that randy ambrosi oh. said was happening back when he spoke at gray cup week it's nice to actually see what that looks like every team is playing everybody twice. You get a home and an away against everybody. The Bombers extra game uh, against BC this year. They have an extra home game against BC, an extra road game against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. That must make you thrilled. (laughs) I would love to see them, them share that around a little bit. Like next year, it'd be Calgary and Edmonton that they, that they play the third time. I think that that'd be fun just you know, because we saw Sask four times last year, right? Including preseason. And it'll be four times this year, including pre- or in 2024, including preseason. But uh, just as you mentioned that, I'm looking at this file that I'm working on about schedules and rest difference. I have a tab. It's just called Stupid Things. I literally, I don't, I literally titled it Stupid Things like Bo Levi Mitchell didn't go back to Calgary last year. Come on, just layups in the schedule that, that the CFL 
for whatever reason they were doing it, they just missed. Cody Fajardo didn't lead Montreal back into Saskatchewan last year. Uh, Andrew Harris, Bomber fans know, never played back against the Bombers uh, when he left for Toronto. You know, how do you... How do you miss these absolute layups in the schedule? And now you get back to home and home. You're not guaranteed. We wouldn't be necessarily guaranteed that, you know, any star player who leaves in free agency will come back to play in, uh, in Winnipeg. Pretend Dalton Schoen goes to Team X. He may, be, he may not play the game where they come back, but at least the possibility is there, and the CFL is doing everything it can to make that a reality. Because, I mean, that's just going to draw earballs for us, right? And that's going to draw ratings for, for us as the broadcasters. And we're going to have great storylines to talk about, potentially, of this guy left and, oh, he's coming back. And under what circumstances did he leave? I'm just I'm just so happy for this this home and home with everybody plus two because it, it just it has the potential to give us so much as fans. Anything else you want to note about the schedule before I let you go? Oh uh, gosh. Uh we talked about the buys look great. Uh the weather's gonna be I'm I'm I understand the weather is going to be absolutely perfect for every single home game. Of course. Like the perfect September weather. Uh that just in from Wade Miller. It's weather's gonna be perfect. You know what it was uh, the burgers are gonna be. In twenty twenty three, the weather for bomber home games, they, it it was really good. I'm trying to think. you're down on the sidelines, yeah. so you would know better. Like I don't remember There's no rainstorm, there's I mean, no the bad game, wind. I mean, I mean there was no snowstorm. The playoff game was like a little bit cold, but it's late November, so what do you want? Like, I think it was pretty good. I don't remember oppressively hot nights either. No? Like, yeah, you're. I think you're, I'd never thought about that, but yeah, we really did get did good weather. Yeah. I mean, and the even the playoff game, right? It was it was warmer than you might have thought a, a game in November might be. Like, it was still chilly, but warmer than I would have thought. So, yeah, uh, I'm just saying, guaranteed great weather again yes. for 2024. Let's run it back. It. Derek, appreciate your time. We'll let you go back to hibernation now. Thanks, brother. Derek Taylor is the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on CGOB. The full schedule at CGOB.com. It's almost Christmas. The snow is uh, on the ground for, for now, at least getting colder out. But that means it's almost time for me to watch curling. But while provincial playdowns are about a month away for the women, the season is long underway. As we welcome in Ted Wyman, sports editor of the Winnipeg Sun and a regular contributor to the show and our Blue Bomber coverage. Uh, Ted, the curling season, it's pretty well year round now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in uh, in Asia and places like that, the, it gets going in June and runs throughout the summer. I mean, it's uh, the curling calendar is uh, is very extensive these days, and really the Canadian scene gets going quite early on in September. And you know, this is a really important time for a lot of the elite curlers because there's a lot of qualifying points available for the Olympics. There's their opportunity to make some money on the tour, and uh, uh, you know, you may not quite maybe the average curler isn't quite as invested at this time of year. Sorry, the average curling fan, but the curlers certainly are. Right. The grand slam of curling has been uh, going on already. Uh, and we've seen earlier this week, curling Manitoba shared the list of basically everybody that's qualified already for the Manitoba Scotties and the Viterra. And there's very few berths left up for grabs. Now, one thing they're doing this year, if people missed it, is that there are people that are automatically qualifying for the Scotties and the Briar months in advance that don't have to win their province and aren't the defending champs like Matt Dunstone for Manitoba is already in the briar if I'm not mistaken and same with Jennifer Jones on the women's side do you like this well it's more of what they've been trying to do uh, at curling Canada to um, you know to reward teams for having a lot of success 
And in this case, they've looked to last season's uh, uh, CTRS points to select teams. So it's Rachel Holman and Jennifer Jones on the women's side. And on the men's side, you've got Brendan Botcher and Matt Dunstone. And that now means that there's only one wild card spot available this year on each side for teams that have uh, that are high up in the CTRS rankings this season. And I think in some ways, it, I, I guess I do like it. And I, I'll say one of the reasons I do is that it kind of opens up some more spots in the provinces themselves. Like in Manitoba, you're taking uh, now Carrie Anderson is already qualified. Jennifer Jones is all, already qualified. And uh, Matt Dunstone's already qualified. You know, that might create more opportunities for younger up-and-coming teams to have a chance to win the provincial championship. And I think that's probably a good thing. Um, and I do think that for teams that have a lot of success on the, on the, uh, in, in the CTRS rankings throughout all of last season, it's a nice reward to know that they can play this season um, just focusing on, on the things that they need to focus on, which with most of them, it's qualifying points for the Olympics. Um, and they don't have to worry about getting into their provincial playdowns, provincial championships, all that kind of thing. So it's all geared towards getting Canada at the top of podiums again, right? Internationally? Well, yes, it is. And the, and the way to get that to happen is to have the best possible field at the Briar and Scotties. Now, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about provincial representation at these big events, um, in some ways taking away from the opportunity to have the best possible fields there. And th- this has been a problem because you want the tradition of all these teams representing their provinces and territories because that's what the Briar and Scotties have always been. It's what a lot of people love about it, people wearing their provincial colors. But then they also want to make sure that there are um, the best teams there and this is what they've done by adding three wildcard teams that the way those wildcard teams have been um, qualified to get into the Scotties and Briar has changed just in the last few years each year it seems but they they're just really uh, trying to tweak it and get it just right so that it's a mixture of the very best teams in this country being there having a chance to get on top of the podium and then represent Canada at the world and also keeping that provincial representation alive. Because right now, if you look at the world curling team rankings, Canada in the women's game, Rachel Holman's third, Carrie Anderson's fourth, Jennifer Jones is sixth. That's it for the top 10 for Canada. On the men's side, Brendan Botcher is second, Brad Gushu is sixth, Dunstone eight, and Kevin Cooey nine. And then we don't have another Canadian until Mike McEwen at 13. There's a lot of good teams around the world right now. And Canada has, in the, the last, what, five or six years, I don't want to say fallen behind, but certainly the, the rest of the world has maybe caught up. Oh, and and we have fallen behind because we're not the ones that are on the top of the podium. And this is the reason why Curling Canada went out and hired David Murdoch to be the high-performance director. Um, The the idea being that they want to be on the top of the podium all the time. In this country, in a sport that we've dominated for so many years, where it's more popular than in any other country in the world, where there are more players, more rinks, more sheets of ice, more fans, we should be better than we are and that's just the truth everyone you know the people at curling canada recognize that they don't just take that as criticism they believe it too and in and so they went out and they got david murdoch who they believe can help their high performance teams become uh number one in the world as opposed to uh, the numbers you read off and 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 honestly this is what's gone wrong in this country in the last few years is not that we don't have great curling teams because we do 
But when they get to the biggest events, to the World Championships, to the Olympics, they've been falling short. And and that's something that just, uh, you know, that's, I guess, I don't want to use the word unacceptable because that just sounds like too much. I mean, obviously, you can't put that kind of pressure on these teams when they get there. But it's not what anybody wants to sit idly by and accept. They want to do whatever they can to try to make this happen and make Canada the number one team again. Back in 2014, gold medals for Jennifer Jones and for Brad Jacobs. Since then, it's really not been the same when it comes to the Olympics for Canada. Do you find it as jarring as I do to see Italy and Joel Retornaz at the top of the men's curling rankings in the world? I don't because he's the only good team out of Italy. And the fact is, they trow- the, 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 the Grand Slam of curling has created a situation where these very top teams from Sweden, from Switzerland, from Italy, uh, various other countries in the world, are, they, they get into these Grand Slams, whereas really good, that, that means a few good teams from Canada are getting bumped out of them. And those teams do, that it's because they're so high in the world rankings, it makes sense. You want your best teams there for these big events. But those teams have really, uh, fo- those countries and their curling associations really focused on certain teams, uh, Scotland and Bruce Mowat, for instance, um, and and uh, and Joel Retornaz out of Italy. He gets the funding to do this, and he gets the opportunity to go and play in these big events, and then he starts to win. And, and he's won a Grand Slam this year, and they're having a great season. It, it's not shocking, but that's where this all comes in, so it makes it so difficult for Canada. I'm not saying it's hard for Canada to compete at that level, but it's hard to have enough teams that once they've got through the grind of winning in Canada, they can go and beat these teams that are so specifically focused um, on on getting to those big events. And they've been training for it all year long because they're really the only team that represents that country. So some big-ish news out of Manitoba's curling circles this week is that Reed Carruthers' team, which has Brad Jacobs, he's been throwing third stones, they're moving him into the skipping role. Yeah, and it's so funny. I don't know if it's funny, but, um, you know, with Reed in the last three or four years, this has been happening repeatedly. Uh, Obviously, he uh, was playing with Mike McEwen when those two first formed a team together, uh, longtime friends and and foes on the ice, but they decided to get together. And uh, they switched back and forth with who was skipping, who was calling the game, who was throwing third, who was throwing fourth for quite a few uh, times before they settled on a lineup. And then last year, Reed uh, brought in Jason Gunlickson to be his third, and that relationship didn't work out, and Jason ended up not being part of the team anymore by the end of the season. And then this year, they bring in Brad Jacobs. He starts the season as the third with Reed skipping and calling the game and throwing four stones. And then now they just feel like it's been such a roller coaster ride of a season after a great start. They won the points bet invitational, but just Nothing too special since then. Uh, you know, four out of six uh, events, they didn't even qualify for the playoffs. And so, Reed, again, going back to a formula that he's done before, is let's switch things up and let's give this, you know, Brad Jacobs a chance. This guy's Brad Jacobs has won an Olympic gold medal. He's won a briar. He's been to 14 briars as a skip and been very close many times. Um, it's it's a, probably a really good choice, and that's nothing against Reed you want to take a chance and see what it looks like with Brad throwing last rock and also calling the game. So I, I find it interesting because I think, um, you know, I think Brad Jacobs, this could end up being called team Brad Jacobs in the new year. If it works out, I, 
Reed told me that's the case. And But, of course, he said it won't matter to them too much as long as they're Team Manitoba. That's all they really want. And with Matt Dumpstone automatically qualified for the Briar, they are the clear favorite to win the Viterra? Absolutely. I mean, Ryan Weeb, I think, a uh, young up-and-coming team, certainly has a chance to give them a run for their money. And we've seen other teams come along and do really well in those situations and surprise, uh, you know, and, and come up with surprises in provincial championships. But, you know, runaway favorite for Carruthers, I would say. And, you know, if they don't win, it'll be a, it'll be an upset for sure. And then on the women's side of things, is it Caitlin Laws, Kate Cameron, who would be the woman's favorite? Well, I think Caitlin Laws for sure. I mean, she's the highest ranked on the CTRS. Kate Cameron's having a pretty good season as well. Um, but, you know, with, with Jones and Anderson out, out of there, it opens it up a little more. And, and we've seen some pretty good teams in the last couple of years coming along. The women's game in Manitoba is absolutely excellent. There are so many good teams in this province. And I think, uh, I think whoever could come out of that would be absolutely outstanding. But, you know, Caitlin Laws has, has put together – a team that's very high end, obviously, with Selena Negevin and the other, uh, you know, some other former members from uh, from the team with Tracy Fleury and uh, and Jocelyn Peterman as well, who's obviously an excellent player. You know, there's a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunities for any team coming out of Manitoba, but I would venture to say that Laws would be the favorite. It's it's the the good thing on that side, I think, is that that's going to be a really competitive event and. And there's a chance that it could be someone else other than them. And not nothing against Caitlin's team. It just might be, you know, nice for Manitoba to see those fresh faces get through. And uh, you, lately you wrote a great column about the crisis of diversity in the sport of curling. We've both been around it a long time, and it's a very white sport, no doubt about that. Uh, you talked to John Epping, Kerry Anderson, Colin Hodgson. Uh, it was great to tell that story. What's the kind of feedback you've received, and why do you do you think it's important to keep talking about this? Well, I think it's important to keep talking about it for one main reason, and that's that curling uh, is not growing. Um, curling clubs are not opening, they're closing. Um, the number of curlers registering for events is down. I, mean, I heard a shocking number this week, Christian. There was uh, 20 spots available for the uh, Viterra Championship on the men's side in, in curling uh, in the zone provincials and only 36 teams registered in total to go after those 20 spots. That's not very many. <laughs> I mean, it, it used to be much, much more people at the grassroots level aren't curling as much. There's certainly a, a difficulty in there in translating from what players want to play at a recreational level to trying to become part of the elite because the elite is so high up there. It's incredibly hard for anybody to catch them. There's, so there, there's a problem with that, but really at the basis of things, it's where are you going to attract new people to come and play the game if you want to grow. And Curling Canada has identified uh, different groups, right? Different communities that aren't traditionally involved in the game to try to approach them and get them involved in the game. And they hired Dr. Richard Norman. He's a, a PhD out of Toronto, and he is a, a person that uh, he, he's, you know, he, he works in different areas, but a part of his focus has been diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're trying their best to reach out to the curling clubs across the country to see if 
they can get people in the curling clubs to go out and reach out to other communities to try to draw people in to increase the base of people who play the game of curling. And that's basically the bottom line of this whole thing is that it's a target area that they want to reach. And, um, you know, I think uh, you'd like always to be a more diverse sport. I think every sport would. But I don't think it's just based on who has traditionally played the game that for just for the sake of it, we need to make sure that there is more diversity. It's also an opportunity to grow the game. And I think that's what makes this an important story. Well, Ted, appreciate you telling it. Appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Thanks for this. Look forward to having uh, many more curling chats over the next few months. Always a pleasure. Great to talk some curling and uh, have a good one, Christian. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. Come on and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to warn you of the deal. You may not share our intellect, which might explain your disrespect.